I'm Michael Flake, one of the pastors here. Great to be together as a church family. Hello. Great to be together as a church family this morning, both online and in the Y. So fun to worship together, whether you're cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus. There is room for you here. This is a safe place to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. We are excited for Serve Day on the 11th. Do not come to the Y. Do not sit on your couch on the 11th. Go and serve the community in some way. Noon, the 11 o'clock service is going to be chomping at the bit for me to wrap up because they know they got to get home. They got to get on their phone. Noon is when it goes, when it goes live. I join my voice to Katie's and say happy Father's Day to the father, the father figures in our lives. We are thankful for you. Whether we celebrate you in your presence or miss you in your absence, we are thankful for your impact on us. Also, happy Juneteenth weekend. It has been 40 years since we had a new federal holiday in the United States, and what a great one to have chosen. What a great one. Happy Juneteenth weekend. Well, today is going to be a fun day. It's, uh, because it's Father's Day, can I tell you just a funny Father's Day story before I... This has nothing to do with the sermon, but... This made me laugh. So on Friday, uh, we told the girls, we have a four and a two-year-old, we told the girls, hey, today daddy's going to make you breakfast. And our, <laughs> so that's not good news usually, but our, uh, our two-year-old said, yay, bacon. <laughs> I have never made them bacon in their whole lives. She said, yay, bacon. I said, well, actually daddy's going to make you cereal. And she said, oh, no. <laughs> well, that's what I live with. That's what I live with. Today, our passage, the one that Georgia read for us earlier, contains one of my favorite verses of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you can always grab one off the table as you enter or exit the gym. But the verse is this, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. I love that verse. I actually grew up at a church called Hope Presbyterian, and we knew that verse backwards and forwards. There was no t-shirt we could not put that verse on. It's like our theme verse, because it was a verse about hope, and we all need hope. We can live for weeks without food and days without water, minutes without air, but how long do we last without hope? There is a deeper dimension in our lives that can only be satisfied by hope. And this verse says that God is the source of our hope. That you and I can look to the future with hope because of God. Not because of our own skills, not because we have a lot of money, not because our preferred political party gets to write the laws. We look to the future with hope because of God. So say the verse with me from Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. So if you are exploring the Christian faith or you're a new Christian, this is a great verse to hold on to. It's a great verse to know. If you've been a Christian for a while, my guess is you might well be familiar with this verse. If you're an exceptionally good Christian, you may have it stitched on a pillow at your home. 
But what I want to challenge all of us to do this morning is to understand this verse in its context, in its original biblical context, and see if God doesn't teach us a little bit more through these words than we first realized. Today we continue in our year-long, all of 2021, our year-long series of sermons called The Story with a capital S. We're looking at the big picture of the Bible, that from the beginning of time, God has been writing a great story in this world and invites us to find our place in it. We're trying to make the Bible a little less big, a little less intimidating, and so we have a number of resources available, reading plans, videos, so that you can dive into those. You can find them on our uh, weekly email we send or on the web. Previously on the story, in the beginning, God created the world, created humanity in His own image, but humanity, you and I, have not chosen a close relationship with God. Instead, we have chosen to rebel against God. In response to humanity's rebellion, God promised to bless all peoples of the world through the family of Abraham and Sarah. Now, that family grew so large it became a people, the Hebrew people, and then that people consolidated, unified into a kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. Through that kingdom, God promised to establish an eternal throne. But we're at the part of the Bible where the kingdom has actually divided, and now the people are being taken into exile. That means Assyria came and took the northern kingdom into exile, then Babylon came and took all of it into exile. Babylon burned Jerusalem to the ground, they burned God's temple to the ground, they left a few people in the rubble, they took everybody else to live scattered throughout the Babylonian empire. When the kingdom divides, God, the Bible's focus shifts to prophets, and prophets are God's appointed watchdogs against idolatry and injustice. God keeps sending these prophets to point the people back to Him. They say, turn away from these little g-gods, turn away from harming the defenseless, and return to God. Worship God. Return to God's ways. Return to God's mercy. This will be the message of the prophets for centuries. Return to God. Return to God's ways. Return to God's mercy. When the people are taken into exile, one of the themes the prophets start to write a lot about is the power of the itty-bitty, the way that a small band of people can come together and continue to shine hope into a hurting world. The Bible calls these little bands of people remnants, small bands of people who come together to shine hope to a hurting world. So this morning, we turn to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Jeremiah's sermons and letters are recorded in a book of the Bible. That book is called Jeremiah. Excellent. Jeremiah 29.1 says, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So what do we learn here? We learn the context of Jeremiah 29. The Babylonians had come to Jerusalem, they'd burned it to the ground, they'd burned God's temple to the ground. The prophet Jeremiah was one of the people that they left in Jerusalem to live in the rubble. And at some point, God prompted him to write a letter to all of the Israelites who had been scattered throughout Babylon. And this is the letter that's going to have the famous words about hope and a future. But before we get there, I want to point out 
a few things that put those words in a broader context. The first of these is, I've already said, I've already made this point, but I need to make the point official by saying, number one, number one, number, 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 number one. These words are written to exiles. Jeremiah 29, these words are written to exiles. Verse 4, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I have carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. From Jerusalem to Babylon. You remember that song? Babylon. Does anyone remember that song? One person. Excellent. Every time I read this verse, I cannot help but say that. It's actually like it was a song on the radio when we were, I was growing up. It's about a guy and his girlfriend who had a falling out. But he actually, the metaphor used to compare it is God and his people during the exile. And that's the hook line, Babylon. But then the, the real hook line is, um, if you want it, come and get it. For crying out loud, the love I had for you was never in doubt. Let go of your heart, let go of your head, feel it now. So it's pretty interesting. It's a, it was just a song on the radio, but it's a pretty biblically literate song to compare his fallout with his girlfriend to God and his people during the exile. But the hook line is, whenever I hear the word Babylon, that's the only way I can think to say it. I'm going to fight that temptation for the rest of the sermon. What God had allowed was for the Babylonian military to overpower the Israelites. They had taken them into exile, left just enough people in, in Jerusalem so that it wouldn't fall into disrepair. But most Israelites had been shipped out as a way to force assimilation into a Babylonian way of life. So Jeremiah 29 is written to God's people whose home is Jerusalem, but they're being forced to live away from their home. They're being forced to live away from where they want to be in a temporary home that they don't really want to assimilate into. And the Bible's word for this is exile. And God's temple has been burned to the ground. And frankly, we're nowhere near those smoldering ashes anymore. So how do you worship God now? Plus, Babylon has some gods. Why not just worship them instead? That would be a lot easier. So the passage this morning and next week are both about exile. And exile passages are crucial for us today because we know that our culture is shifting and that the worship of God and faith in Jesus is becoming more marginalized. We're losing some of the societal protections we once enjoyed. And that makes some people really sad and some folks really anxious. And I understand that. I would also encourage us to not get too chicken little about all this stuff because God's people know how to live in exile. God's people know how to thrive in exile. This is a part of the Bible I think we can really relate to today. That the kingdom, now the church with a capital C, the kingdom is divided and been taken into exile. And in exile, we realize a lot of the divisions were kind of silly. And God invites us into his mission in the world to band together, to create communities that work together to shine God's hope to a hurting world. God's people know how to live in exile, know how to thrive in exile. In fact, in the New Testament, Christians are referred to as exiles. 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So Peter, as in the, the like Peter who followed Jesus, 
Peter is writing to Christians, and he describes them as exiles, as exiles scattered throughout the known world. Now, why would Peter call Christians exiles? Well, when you become a Christian, when you commit yourself to Jesus the Christ, your home changes. Your citizenship transfers. Your home is no longer this world in which we live. Our ultimate home is with God, in God's presence. Our ultimate home is eternity with God once our lives on this earth have come to an end. So this world is not our home as we've put our faith in Christ. This world is our temporary home. From here to the end of our lives on this planet, we are in exile. So Peter calls Christians exiles because we are in a temporary home, yearning for our real home, and needing to be cautious about becoming too assimilated. Peter calls Christians exiles because we are in a temporary home, yearning for our real home, needing to be cautious about becoming too assimilated. Because let's be honest, the world around us has some strange customs that are not the customs of our ultimate home. But as a Christian, if I'm not careful, I may start to assimilate a little bit too much. For example, I might internalize the political divisiveness of our era and bring that into my relationship with you. And I might start to think that I cannot love you or care about you or speak well of you or assume that you are intelligent unless you agree with me politically. Now, is that the message of the Bible? No, not even a minor theme. So when you or I see a Christian or we see ourselves starting to adopt this kind of a stance, we put on our exile thinking cap. And we might say, whoa, back on the assimilation. Or sometimes I might hear Christians uh, or myself spend a lot of time comparing, you know, who's a better preacher, who's a better worship leader, as if there's any debate. Now, is that something that Jesus encouraged us to do? Or is that over-assimilation into a competitive, comparison-based culture? You see, this exile thinking cap is a really pretty helpful thing. Keep your exile thinking cap handy. That we want to be thoughtful before we adopt the the customs of the culture around us as if they were our own. We want to be astute about the Babylonian gods we're being enticed to worship. We want to be astute about the Babylonian gods we might be even being forced to worship. That's point number one. Point number two is that God encourages exiles to create rich, textured lives. Verses five and six. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. And you may see why God has to say this. You could take this whole exile uh, stuff too far. It would be possible to say, well, I'm in exile, and God has a hopeful future for me, so I just need to hunker down and wait for God to take me home. And God says, no, don't do that. Create a rich and a textured life. Build a house, plant a garden, 
get married. Don't be afraid to put down some roots. Don't be afraid to make some big commitments, even when you're in exile. Life does not start when you get out of exile. Life is happening now. So live. Create a life that honors God and brings you joy. Life does not start when you get out of exile. Create a life that honors God and brings you joy. After I graduated from Davidson, I, spent, I moved to Nashville. I spent three years there for grad school, and I told myself I was not going to be there long enough to make it worth the effort to put down any roots. Do you know what I learned? Three years is a long time to just hunker down and wait. Now, I love Jeremiah 29, 11, but I had never paid any attention to the verses right before it, which would have told me, put down some roots. Get to know your neighbors. Get involved in a church. Join a serving team. Join a community group. It doesn't matter you'll move again in a few years. It doesn't matter the church wasn't a perfect fit. Exiles need lives that are about more than hunkering down. So God is inviting us to build lives that honor Him and bring us joy, even in our temporary home. Number three, God tells exiles to seek the welfare of our temporary home. Verse seven, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So now God is saying through Jeremiah, it's no accident that you and I are in exile where we are. God has sent us here for a purpose. God knows what he's doing. If you are a Christian, or if today or in the future you become a Christian, you become a follower of Jesus the Christ, your citizenship transfers. Your home moves from this world to the world that is to come. You become in an instant an exile. Does that sound familiar? Good. That was sort of the point about five minutes ago. And so, yes, you can look to the future with hope because you're going to see God's plan unfold. But this is the interesting surprise. Becoming an exile also allows you to see more clearly your purpose in the present. It allows you and I to see more clearly our purpose in the present. We start to see that we are not where we are on accident. That God has a purpose for our lives. And that we can pursue that purpose with passion because we know that we're walking into a hopeful future. God will take care of the future. That frees us up to pursue our purpose in the present. And what is that purpose? It is at least in part to seek the welfare of your temporary home. To improve the lives of people in your temporary home. To make your temporary home a more loving place, a more peaceful place. To pray for your temporary home. To pray for the people of your temporary home. To pray for the leaders of your temporary home. We want the communities around Davidson, North Carolina to be a better place because we are here. Period. This is what's behind our continual efforts to reach out to students at Davidson College, to, to build a deep relationship with Gethsemane Baptist. These sort of relationships make our community better. 
It doesn't let everyone stay in their little segmented pods. It makes our community better, and it does so in Jesus' name. Now, deep relationships take time. Deep relationships are not an immediate result. But we want to be part of seeking the peace and prosperity of the place that God has brought us as exiles. One of my favorite examples of this was uh, when we had to, if you're newer, you would not know this, but the land that we own on South uh, Main Street in Davidson had to be rezoned to allow a church to be built there. And in the rezoning, there's there's a public hearing that you have to do. And the public hearing had 12 comments. We thought, "Uh uh-oh, here come 12 comments at a public hearing. A public hearing usually has one to three comments. Twelve comments. The comments were almost all from people in the community calling to say what a difference the people of our church had made in their lives. And we solicited a couple of those, I'll be honest. We solicited a couple of those. But we did not solicit 12 of those. And so at some point it quit being a public hearing and it was really a worship service because it was speaking to what God does through people's lives. It was really beautiful. And in the years ahead, we will actually this fall, we'll, we'll work on our uh, getting commitments for the building and then the years ahead we'll build a building and all that. But I just w- really want to say to you all what we've done in these first 10 years of building a, a rich, textured life together in the community and trying to make the community a better place because we're here, we'll continue to do that. We didn't do that to get a rezoning. We, we did that because it's what God tells exiles to do, encourages exiles to do. We'll continue, you'll continue to do that, I have no doubt. But I hope that you see this is an important part of the purpose God has given us in this life, to seek the well-being of our temporary home, not to just hunker down and wait for God to come get us. Which finally gets us to number four, number four, number, 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 number four. Remember that God promises a hopeful future, not an easy future. A hopeful future, not an easy future. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my promise to bring you back to this place. Meaning Jerusalem. That's where he's writing from, to bring you back to Jerusalem. And then the very next verse tells the people that they have hope, and a future. Why does God need to say that they have hope and a future? Well, because they're about to be in exile for 70 years. 70 years. Do you imagine at some point in 70 years, the exiles are going to start to wonder if living for God is a mistake? Don't you imagine at some point in those 70 years, they're going to start wondering if trusting God is a mistake? This is why God has to say to them very plainly on the front end, I have a hopeful future for you. Sometimes when I hear Jeremiah 29, 11, I can hear it as God promising a ride on easy street, but in fact, it's the exact opposite. We need to know Jeremiah 29, 11 because the future is going to be tough. Some beautiful things are going to be shattered. Sometimes it will seem like God has forgotten you and left you for dead in exile. And in those times, you need to be able to say to yourself 
For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. You have hope and you have a future. You have hope and you have a future. You have hope and you have a future. And it's not dependent on what your circumstances look like today or tomorrow or next year. And it's not dependent on what our culture looks like today or tomorrow or next year because your hope and your future depend upon the trustworthiness of God. The God who has said to you that He has plans for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, not to crush you, not to take you under, plans to give you hope, a future full of hope, until one day He will welcome you into His presence. You will walk into His presence, and you will hear these transforming words that somehow will make it all worth it. The words will be, welcome home. Welcome home. You have a hope and a future. You have a home. God's going to take care of that. Leaving you and me the ability to focus more purposefully on our present. God has a plan to bring His love to your neighborhood. God has a plan to bring His love to this community. God has a plan to bring His love to your school, to your workplace. And when I tell you the plan, you're going to think God should have done a few more brainstorming sessions, but here it is. The plan is you. The plan is me. Seek the well-being, the peace and prosperity of where I've taken you into exile. So the question I'd like you to reflect on as I wrap up today is this. Do you have a hopeful future because of Jesus the Christ? And how does your answer affect how you live in the present? Do you have a hopeful future because of Jesus the Christ? And how does your answer affect how you live in the present? What I've been trying to emphasize is that what's so interesting about following Jesus and becoming an exile, what's so interesting about that is the hopeful future is designed to make you engage more in your present circumstances, not less. Think about Jesus. He came into a world that was not his home. He left the fullness of heaven to experience the brokenness of earth. I mean, he exemplified Jeremiah 29. Did he create a rich and a textured life? Did he seek the welfare of his temporary home? Did he? (laughs) There's four books of the Bible devoted to the lives that he impacted just in his time on earth. But in the end, he sought all of our welfare. By living through darkness, we cannot imagine on that cross. And he lived through it because he trusted that God the Father had a hopeful future for him. And on that third day, the hopeful future came true. He rose up from the dead. He walked out of his grave so that one day his followers can too. He showed us that God is trustworthy and that in the wake of the crucified and resurrected Jesus, you and I have a hopeful future future. In the wake of the crucified and resurrected Jesus, you and I have a hopeful future.
Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, a chance to talk to God, to listen to God. About whatever He's stirring up in your heart or your mind. Just take a quiet moment for personal prayer. Lord, you do promise us hope and a future. And so, Lord, I pray as we watch you make good on that promise that we will come to trust you more. I pray that that promise will help us engage more deeply in the life you're calling us to now. I pray ultimately that that promise will lead us to Jesus as the true fulfillment of our hope and our future. And so, Lord, whatever struggles, doubts we have in our heart, whatever struggles or doubts we have in our head, I pray we would be willing to let them go, to open ourselves more fully to feel your love for us, a love that has pursued us even in our rebellion, and a love that calls us home as Jesus invites us to follow him. I pray we'll make that step of following Jesus. We pray all this in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we stand to worship, let me remind you that if giving or a prayer request is part of your worship today, online there's a little tab, a, a pin that shows you how to do that in the gym. You can do that on your way out the door in the wicker basket. Just put your prayer request or gift in the wicker basket. But let's stand. Let's worship together.